Open your Bibles to 2 Chronicles 34. Amen and amen. What wonderful singing. If you found that singing spiritually reviving, it's even better on Sunday night. I would encourage you to return this evening. We will finish our series on the fruit of the Spirit. We are going to see all nine fruits compared, and I would encourage you to come back. I think we would all admit who have been in those messages that it has been uh, very helpful for us, and it's been helpful for me in studying and preparing. Tonight, we finish the fruit of the Spirit. But this morning, we are in 2 Chronicles 34. Lord willing, next Sunday morning, we finish the books of the kings of Israel. We've done 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, and 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, and 2 Chronicles. Next week is the final message. For over a year, we have been studying the kings. And we will have, Lord willing, the last sermon next Lord's Day morning. But this morning, we have come to the man named Josiah. There are 42 kings in Israel, 41 plus a queen. Josiah is at the very end. In fact, after Josiah, three of his sons will sit on the throne. And for three months, his grandson. And then the kingdom is over. Josiah is the man at the end trying by all means to stop the car from falling over the edge of the cliff. Josiah is the man at the very end trying to hold up the weight so that it does not fall and crush everyone around them. Josiah is the one, as the building is burning, he's trying to get everyone out. And his life is a message for you and for I. One of the most remarkable features of the Bible is these biographies that it records. And every line is important. There are no wasted lines. Every detail should speak to us. And it's a further proof that the Bible was written by God because the Bible records the sins of the people it talks about. Now, if you'll read the Quran, you will find maybe one sin that Muhammad does. When it records about Moses, it doesn't record any sins. When it records about Joseph, it records no sins. When it records about Abraham, it records no sins. When it records about Jesus, of course there are no sins in the Quran. But if you'll read the Bible and you'll read about Abraham, you'll find that he lied and took two wives. If you'll read about Moses, you'll find that he murdered a man. And later on, he did not believe God and disobeyed. If you'll read about Joseph, yeah, I don't know if you'll see any sins there, except perhaps he was cocky as a young man. But if you'll read about David, you'll find the sins. If you'll read about men in the New Testament, like Peter, you'll find the sins. If you read about Paul, he even tells us his own sins. 
And that's what we're going to see this morning. We're going to see a remarkable man, a man whose life should amaze and convict you. It should cut you to the heart. It should provide something to talk about over dinner. So what do we have with Josiah? He is one of the shining lights. In fact, if you can choose the greatest of the kings of Israel, who would you say? You have to say David because the Bible tells us he's the greatest. After David, it's Hezekiah and Josiah. Hezekiah, we saw him about two weeks ago. He's the great-grandfather of this man, Josiah. Hezekiah was the second greatest, maybe equal with Josiah. And it's Josiah and Hezekiah at the very end of the story. What can we learn from their lives? What happens in their lives? I'll tell you up front. Here's what we're going to learn. I'm previewing what we're going to see. This is what we're going to see. If you'll just watch my hand, this is it. It's a slow, steady, upward climb for 30 years. With many people, their Christian life is is like this. A little up, a little down, up, down. We like to say three steps forward and two steps back. Eventually, you will get to Johannesburg if you keep taking three steps forward and two steps back. But it's going to be slow. Josiah doesn't have the two steps back. He has three steps forward, step after step, movement after movement. And I would like to show and chart, if we can, his movement upward. And if you are a parent today, or if you want to be a parent, or if you plan someday that it would be nice to have a wife and kids, Nico, then you need to mark your Bible today because there's a slow, steady march upward. And it specifically applies to parents because the story begins in verse 1. Let's start. Look at verse 1. Josiah was 8. He starts at 8. And you parents get them when they're little. That's the first point. He started well as a child. He's 8 years old and he's crowned king. But remember what happened. If you'll look back in chapter 33, verse 21, Ammon was 2 and 20 years old, 22 years old when he began to reign. And how long did Ammon reign in chapter 33, verse 21? Two years. When Ammon dies, who is his son? Verse 25. Josiah. Which means, before Ammon took over, how old was Josiah? Six. Six years old, right? Because Josiah starts at eight, and his father dies two years early. His father ruled for two years. So take uh, two off of eight, and we have six. When Josiah was six, who was on the throne? Manasseh. Manasseh. Ammon's father, Josiah's grandfather, Manasseh died at 67. And he was righteous for about five years. Which means when Manasseh repented, 
He came back, as Malachi chapter 4 tells us, and the hearts of the fathers were turned to the children, and Manasseh had some kind of influence on Josiah. And Josiah sees what Manasseh is doing, and he looks at his grandfather. His father is still very young. Ammon has Josiah when Ammon is 16 years old. But Manasseh, the old grandfather, who now repents and says, look at what I did. I ruined the country. Now I'm going to change. I'm going to take away the idols. And Josiah, as a two-year-old and a three-year-old, sits with his grandfather. And a four-year-old and a five-year-old, and he watches his grandfather. And his father is a young, foolish man. He doesn't learn. He had already been ruined. But the grandson learns. As a boy, he remembers that good example. And then if you have a pen, beside verse 1, you can write on the side the number 8. And then go down two verses to verse number 3. And it says, in the 8th year of his reign. Now he started when he was 8. And now we're in the 8th year. So 8 plus 8 is what? So write 16 in the margin beside number 3. So beside verse 1, you'll write the number 8. And beside verse 3, you'll write the number 16. In the 8th year of his reign, 16 years old, while he was still what? What does your Bible say in verse 3? While he's still young, while he's still a boy, he's still youthful, he begins to seek after the God of David, his father. Notice this, number one, he seeks the God of David. He's traditional and conservative. When you follow a sinful tradition, you are like a security guard of a lie that will never die. But when you follow a godly tradition, you are building on the rock-solid foundation of those before you. Don't try to reinvent the wheel. Remember that there's a Ford. There's a Toyota. Go from there and build onward. That's why we read the creeds in this church. We're not so foolish as to think we're the first ones. There are people better than us and stronger than us in the past. That's why we read from 325 AD that Jesus was God and we say what they say. We're standing with them. I think a great number of people who call themselves Christians think they invented it. They just discovered it. So they don't mind inventing new things. We don't want to invent anything here. We want to faithfully take the baton from the man who was running before us. Can you imagine in a relay race, if someone, he's running and he hands the baton and the guy's about to grab it, he's, whoa, whoa, I don't want that one. I want a new one. Let's go over there and get a new baton. No, no, take it and run. I, I, I've got my own. I, I've got this special one. He follows the God of David, his father. Notice, secondly, he follows God while he is a youth. Children can be believers. I have reason to believe that my son was converted at five years old. My wife believes that she was converted at seven. I don't know when exactly I was converted, but I know it happened 11 or earlier. My my teammate was converted at seven. 
his wife, about the same age. Your children can be converted. Charles Spurgeon said a child as young as five can be converted. Children can be saved. This boy follows the Lord as a youth. When he's young, he follows the Lord. We ought to be patient with children because they can learn. We have a Sunday school class in this church. The lockdowns have changed it all. But we would love for you to come. Thursdays, 4 o'clock, we teach the youth here. Because children can be converted. But number two, notice this. It was at 16 that he began to seek the Lord. So we need to be patient from the year 8 to the year 16. Let's not be in a rush. Some churches baptize people the very first day that they say they've become a Christian. I have been in churches where if you say at 1030, I believe in Jesus, they'll baptize you at 1045. Wait a minute. From 8 to 16, what was happening with Josiah? Things were happening in his heart, and his mind. We need to be patient as the work of grace settles and godliness and piety firms up in the heart of a child. So we do not want to say, oh, they're just kids. And we don't want to say, oh, we'll accept anything. They said they believe in Jesus. Of course, children want to be accepted by the adults. So we need to actively evangelize children, but not be so hasty that we take the first word. Listen to this verse, Proverbs 22, verse 6. Do you know it? Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Let me encourage you to train your children when they are young. Much of the child's worldview is settled by the time they're six. They know the way to respond to things. They know the kind of words to say. They already know the kinds of feelings to put on each activity. They've learned that from their parents. And now these days from their grandparents. And from the government and from teachers. And from TV and actors. We need to teach children from the beginning because if they are trained up as a child, they will not depart from it. Like the katas in karate. Have you ever seen someone practicing karate? They have these disciplines, these forms of movements called a kata, where they have to hold their hands and then move to the next position. And they'll practice these over and over. My children are taking karate now, so I have the chance to watch these every morning. And there are how many different katas? Many. But what is the point? You memorize these movements so that your body is accustomed by habit to a certain way of life. In the same way, the habits of godly religion that are learned in childhood become a reflex of sound judgment in adulthood. Why does a child, when he's 20, curse? Because the reflexes that he learned come out without time to reflect. You see, it's those reflexes that we have to teach in childhood. And Josiah taught himself or was taught 
by his grandfather or others around him. He taught himself to have the reflex to respond in a godly way. Mothers and fathers, we cannot take this responsibility too seriously. It's not possible. Have you ever met a father or a mother who took the raising of their children too seriously? My dear friend Viam, he's now in Australia teaching in a Christian school there, but he grew up in South Africa. And the one thing I remember about Viam, he played rugby for a while, and then the Lord converted him. And now he has three children, and all, he's a few years younger than me, but what I noticed was remarkable about Viam, almost every time I talk with that man, he's going to bring up some comment about how he wants his children to be true Christians and how he's concerned that his true children might not follow Christ. He's not a pastor. He's just a man. He's a Christian. But he is consumed with, I've, I've been given these three. If I mess it with these three, I've blown it. Parents, we can't take this too seriously. And as Richard Baxter said in another context, the best of men are prone to do too little. Parents, we cannot do too much. Let me give one comment here about family worship. Is there family worship in your home? Do you read the Bible and pray with your children? Do you teach them Bible doctrine like a Christian catechism? How often? It is rare to find families who read and pray with their children. But the Puritans, that is the greatest Christians in the history of the church, the Puritans in England, Europe, and America in the 16 and 1700s said family worship should happen twice a day, every morning and every night. You look at that and say, oh, that's extreme. They weren't taking chances with their children. Next week, we're going to see when we see the final message in the Kings, What's most remarkable is how many of them lost their children. You'll see a, a godly father and his children were lost. Come back next week as we delve more deeply into that. Those who fall away after a good beginning are in great danger of a far worse judgment for having turned away from such light. But notice this. When did he follow the Lord? While he was what? While he was young, a youth. Youth is particularly marked by zeal, energy, and strength. The book of Proverbs says, the glory of a young man is his legs. That means he can run. Now I try to run and I feel it. Do you? This guy played soccer. That guy, you still run. Is it the same as it was 30 years ago? Youth is marked by zeal, energy, strength. Lamentations 3 verse 27. It is good for a man to bear the yoke when he's young. Young people, don't waste your days. Do hard things. That's the title of a book written by two teenage brothers. Two teenage brothers wrote a book called Do Hard Things. And they urge young people, don't wait till you're old. Start now. And I say that to you, start now. Start now to follow Christ. 
Start now to do a Bible study. I knew a young man once who started a Bible study with other young people to try to lead them to Christ. I knew a young man once who asked his pastor, when are you going on evangelism so I can go with you? Start young when you have energy and strength and zeal. That's about all you have. Use it for the Lord. Don't be that man who in Matthew 25 hid his talent. And when the Lord came, he said, well, I just had one, so I hid it. Don't bury your energy or your time or your strength. Many of the best servants of God started when they were young. Samuel was under 10 when he began to follow the Lord. Joseph was a teenager. David was a teenager. Jeremiah was a teenager. Daniel was a teenager. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was a teenager. And Timothy was probably 15 to 16 years old when he followed Paul as a missionary. Fathers and mothers, raise your children to give all of their energy, their whole battery to the Lord Jesus and to growing and being mature and wise. Proverbs 20 verse 11, even a child is known by his actions, whether he's pure, whether he's right. Even you can tell a five-year-old, oh, oh, that one, oh, he's a bad one, oh, he's naughty. Even children can be known. And it says more about the parents when they're eight than about the children. A man who wastes his youth is a man who throws away one of God's greatest of gifts. What is youth? When does it start and when does it end? Very quickly. When does youth start? Not at 13. Youth starts from childhood, from infancy. And it goes on until a man begins his life's calling. Usually in our day, we mark a man's life calling by three things. Job, wife, house. Not necessarily in that order. But maybe in that order. Job, wife, house. When you've got those, you've begun your calling. Youth is dead. But until then, remember Josiah's example. A godly childhood is as vital as a strong foundation for a building. How many of you found it difficult to live a life of integrity at 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 because you did not have the Bible reading and prayer? You did not have the pattern of church attendance Sunday morning, Sunday night, Thursday night. You did not have the growing up the pattern of we're always on evangelism. When I grew up, it was unthinkable not to be at church on Sunday morning or Sunday night. Unthinkable. There was never an excuse for it. If you want to say, as some people have said, oh, well, you're a missionary, you're a pastor, as if that started at 23. It started by my mom and dad saying, we never miss. And we don't miss not only Sunday morning, we're there for Sunday school and the the worship service. And then Sunday night. Parents, when you wisely train your children like that, You're training them so that when he's 40, he has a reflex. He can't lie. The lying, it's not possible because I know my reflex is to tell the truth. Oh, I can't be lazy in spiritual matters because I have the reflex built up over time. 8 and 16. Mark another number. Look at verse 3. In the 12th year, he began to purge Judah. 12 years. 12 plus 8 is what? Write 20 in the margin. Now you should see three numbers there. Eight, 
16.20, he destroys the idols as a 20-year-old. He took some time to get ready, but now he's ready to enter his life's calling. You see, it was youth up to, verse, up to age 20. Now he's out of youth. He sought the Lord and he's ready to purge Judah. Verse number three, he purges Judah and Jerusalem from the high places. The Asherim. The Asherim are either wooden poles on which they would put idols at the top. Or they were wooden poles that people would bow to as a substitute for these other gods. The Asherim. If you have the King James, it will say the groves. It means poles. And we look back in culture and history and believe that the poles were probably Asherim poles. How many of you have a Bible translation that has the word Asherim in verse 3? Do you have that? That's the Hebrew word Asherim because they don't know exactly what it is. It means poles. What's that? He takes away poles? What, What is this? We think probably from history that it was wooden poles that they bowed to his gods or that they attached gods to on the top. Asherim is in the plural because there were many of them. And he went everywhere destroying these. Now, Chronicles does not give the details. In the book of Chronicles, you have about three verses. But if you read 2 Kings 23, you will see almost 20 actions that Josiah does. In 2 Kings 23, that's the, the other, the parallel story. Josiah, it says, each time he purged the idols, he cut down the idols, he removed the idols, he ground the idols to dust. In 2 Kings, it says he did it each time. Notice this in verse 4. They broke down the altars of the Baals. Where? Or what's remarkable about this? What's the, the, the next phrase? In his presence. Here's a 20-year-old king. He could sit back at the kingdom and say to the men, Hey, servants, go down there and destroy those poles. Go over there and throw down the gods. He goes with them. Boys, if you set a pattern of laziness at 12 and 16, you'll be lazy at 20. But if you seek the Lord at 16 and give over all of your manly energy you might still be a hard worker at 20. Have you ever met a 20-year-old boy? It seems like you have to jab him with a fork spade to get him to do anything. The book of Proverbs refers to that too. It says, they'll cook and then put their hand in the dish and they're too lazy to take their hand from the dish the whole way to their mouth. Or the other proverb that says, the lazy man goes out and he goes out hunting and he shoots the, the impala, but he's too lazy even to bring it home. And hey, that thing's heavy. I, I dragged it 50 meters. Ah, they didn't tell me how heavy these were. Chicken's not so heavy. And he quits. This man wasn't that way. In his presence. And that's what, the, what Kings tells us. He does it, he does it, he does it. In 2 Kings 23, 16, it says, when he had finished destroying all, All the idols, it says this, he looked all around him. He turns in a circle, checking every spot. Have you ever known a young boy who's good at being observant? Not very many. 
This young boy said, not only am I going to go with all the demolition crews to destroy the idols, I'm going to do something else. I'm going to teach myself to look carefully. I'm going to look. Is there any sin over there? Okay, I didn't see any. Let me move my eyes just two degrees. What about there? Five degrees. Ten degrees. Four degrees. And he goes around checking all the places Guess what? In 2 Kings 23, 16, Josiah is looking all around and he finds some more. Isn't that wonderful? Josiah so hates sin, he's not going to say, if sin comes right up in front of me, I'll fight it. Josiah says, I'm on the war path. I hate sin. I'm getting rid of it all. Like the wife who says, a snake got in the house. And the husband says, oh, I don't see it. And she says, that's not enough for me. You're going through this house. You're going to move everything, every box, every crate. If there's a snake, you're going to find it and kill it. If you want to hear, I love you again, you're going to kill that snake. And it's not enough just to look and say, oh, I didn't see it, sweetheart. I don't care if you didn't see it. I want you to look until you find it. And Josiah says the same thing. I'm going to keep looking. I'm going to go everywhere until I find it. And notice this. He does go everywhere. Verse number five, he burnt the bones of the priests on their altars and cleansed what? What does he cleanse? Judah and Jerusalem. Verse six, he also did this where? Manasseh, Ephraim, Simeon, Naphtali. Wait just a minute. Those four places were outside his country. His country was Judah. Like northern Rhodesia and southern Rhodesia. It would be like a man in Zimbabwe saying, I'm going to fight and do what's right. And then he looks around and says, it looks like Zimbabwe's getting okay. Let's turn my eyes to Tanzania. I've got uh, Zambia, I'm sorry. Let me go now to northern Rhodesia. I did my part here, now let me go north. This man so loves God and so hates sin that he cannot stay in one place fighting with his sin He's going to destroy it wherever he finds it. And that goes perfectly with 2 Kings 23, 16, the verse that I've referenced several times now. He turns in a circle, checking all around him, and he finds more. What does he find in 2 Kings 23, 16? Well, it says it right here in verse 5. Don't turn there in your Bibles. Look at 34, verse 5. He burnt the bones of the priests on their altars. Now, in verse 5... It just says he burnt the bones. But in 2 Kings 23, it says he had to search for that. He looks all around. He's searching up. He's going to the graveyards. Hey, walk through the graveyards. Who is that guy? Oh, uh, I don't know. He was, he was just a tailor. Did he love God? Uh, let me ask. Okay, what about this guy? No, uh, hey, the people say this guy was a priest. Oh, dig him up. Dig him up. Dig him up. He's been dead for 30 years. Dig him up. Get the shovel, get the spade, get the pick, down. It's disgusting. Dig. They pull out the bones. Crush them. Why are we doing this? So that everyone will know for all history, this man hates sin. You lead God's people astray, I'm going to dig you up, break you into powder, and dishonor you for all the world to know. We see shadows of that in the New Testament when Paul the Apostle is not afraid to name by name false teachers. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19, Hymenaeus and Alexander. 
He names them by name and says, publicly rebuke them. In fact, Paul does more than that in the book of Galatians that we've been reading. In chapter 2, who does Paul rebuke? Peter, Cephas. Paul not only rebukes false teachers by name in public, Paul rebukes good pastors who do bad things in public. This is a man who says, I've got the spirit of Josiah. I'm looking all around. And if I see a man who sinned against God and led God's people astray, I'm going to dig up their bones and dishonor them publicly and let you know, if you sin as well, this is what you deserve. Joash, Josiah, is an amazing example. He goes outside of his own province in verse 6. In verse 7, when he had broken down the altars and the ashram, had beaten down all the images into powder, cut down all the idols throughout all the land of Israel, then what does he do? What does he do in verse 7? He goes back. Verse 8. Now in the 18th year of his reign, uh uh-oh, write down what beside this? Number 26. 18 plus 8 is 26. Write down the number 26 here. So in the side of your Bible, you should have four numbers. 8, 16, 20, 26. We've now watched a man for almost 20 years of his life. What is his pattern? It's exactly what I told you at the beginning. It's a slow, steady march upward. There's been nothing in Kings or in Chronicles recorded evil about this man. It's a slow, steady climb upward. This is a man who hates sin and is moving onward. In verse number 8, he begins to repair the house of the Lord his God. Before we see that, however, I've jumped over something that I would like to just comment about. What is the first reform that Josiah does? What does he do? He destroys the idols, the false gods, the altars, the ashram, the idolatry. Before he builds up the true religion, he destroys what? I want us to ponder what that means. A great many people attempt to build Christianity on top of African traditional religion. And they find that they constantly have cracks in their Christianity. So that when a funeral comes of someone that you really loved, you turn back to fearing the spirits. When someone is involved in wristbands or tying strings around waists, or pouring beer at funerals in a certain way. When someone is involved with fetishes, like putting a Bible under your pillow every night, or opening the Bible right beside your bed, as if an open Bible allows power to come out of it or something. When people do these things, they show what they really fear. But God has not given us believers the spirit of fear. The spirit of fear is the spirit of African traditional religion because ATR is bound by fear. They are terrified, which is what Hebrews 2 verse 15 tells us. All their lives, they were kept in bondage to this fear. Romans 3, there is no fear of God before their eyes, but there is this fear of death. That's the religion before the Bible came. Before the Bible gets to any group, they are filled with what? 
fear. And we cannot conquer that fear by saying the false religion is here and let's just build the true religion on top of it. No, destroy the false religion. Break up the bones into powder. Don't just do what Manasseh did. What did Manasseh do uh, last week? Manasseh takes the idols and puts them in storage. What does Josiah do? He opens the storerooms, breaks them up, destroys them completely. He wants nothing left of this. If you would build a solid foundation for the future, you must destroy false religion before building true. Our dear friend Francis has told me that privately, that she was converted from Catholicism. We love Catholic people, and there are many converted people, some converted people in the Catholic Church. But Catholicism is a religion that denies every one of the five solas of the Reformation. The Bible alone, they would say the Bible plus church authority. Christ alone, they would say Christ plus the sacraments. Faith alone, they would say faith plus sacraments. Grace alone, they would say grace plus sacraments. To God alone be glory, they would say to God plus the church and the magisterium. In fact, in the time of the Reformation, the Catholic Church explicitly said to the Reformers, we could have unity with you if you just take take away the word only. We like Bible, but not Bible only. By beer, but not by beer chete. Rotendo, but not rotendo pezzi. Nyasha, but not nyasha chete. There must be the destruction of false religion before we can build the true religion. And then notice one more comment about the false religion. Idolatry is the most common sin mentioned in the Old Testament. We're going to see next week that the entire reason the country is destroyed is because of idolatry. There were many sins, but it's idolatry that causes the country to be destroyed. Idolatry is actually the worship of demons. How many gods are there? There's only one. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 4 and 5. There are many gods. How many gods are there? There's only one true God, but there are many false gods, gods that the world makes gods. And that sin is called the sin of idolatry. And in Deuteronomy 32, verse 17, it says, they worshipped idols, they, I'm sorry, they worshipped demons that they called gods. When someone has an idol, they're actually worshipping a demon. When Josiah attacked the idols, he was attacking demonic powers. What is an idol in its essence? Three things. This is what an idol is. Let's see if you have one of these, because I know everyone in this room will say, I don't have idols, and I don't know anyone who does have an idol. Really? Here's what an idol is. Three things. Number one, whatever is our highest authority, whatever receives our happiest love or heaviest fear. Number three, whatever teaches our first principles. I'm sorry, I shouldn't say whatever. I should say Whatever outside of Jehovah. Anything outside of Jehovah that is your highest authority is an idol. Anything outside of Jehovah that receives your happiest love or your heaviest fear. Anything outside of Jehovah that declares your first principles is a what? Idol. Everyone, what is it? It's an? Idol. 
Three things. If it's your highest authority, your happiest love, or the teacher, your greatest teacher. It's the thing that really teaches you what matters and what's important in life. That's an idol. Do we have idols today? Well, ask yourself, what is people's highest authority today? Science, money, family, their own urges. I just finished a book this week called Worshipping the State. Sadly, the government is returning. Even though we are in, in the 20th century, an era of freedom, the government is returning to a position of deity. In the time of Jesus Christ, the government held a position of God. Which is why in 2 Thessalonians it says, the ruler would sit as God. The king would call himself God. In the ancient world, the king, Caesar, said, I am Lord, and you will come and worship me like a God. You can have other gods as well, but I'm one of them. Christianity said, no, we won't take the certificate. We will not worship the government as God. It's coming back. If you don't give unquestioned support to what the government says... You're branded in many different ways today. And that is one of the graces of America. That thankfully in the world there was a pocket where they did not give that kind of authority to the government. Now it's being destroyed today. The state and the government becomes an idol when you say it's my highest authority. We thank God for the government. I thank God for freedom to worship until a few months ago. I thank God that we can preach the gospel, except that now, because of the government rule, I was in Valdezia recently preaching to an old man. I went to his house and said, And he said, Hey, 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 Oh, I'm so sorry, sir. I'm in a mask in Karwa Corona. You don't come in here. You don't have a mask. It's the time of Corona. That old man is on his way to hell. How will he find out about Christ? The government told him, it's not the time to listen to the gospel. Will the Bible ever come to that home again? Who's going to take it there? How many hundreds or thousands of years was it before the gospel ever got to that specific place when a man walked in to tell him the truth and he just turned it away because the government said, "Eh, this isn't the time for Bible. Money, I put that in my list, good call. ATR, African traditional religion, nature. Some people set up nature as their highest God because it's their authority. Whatever happens in nature, whatever goes on in nature, that's my highest authority. I have a very interesting book written by an academic called Resisting the Green Dragon. How to avoid following nature as your God. What about ourselves? Ever since Soren Kierkegaard uh, codified the idea of existentialism, we have rocketed upward in the number of people who would hold themselves as their God. Which is why all around the world today we have phrases like obey you, trust yourself. There's no right way or wrong way, just my way. Each of those came from an advertisement, one for cars, one for cold drink. Recently, I saw an advert on YouTube for Coca-Cola where they said, no boredom, no judgment, 
only you. What is Coke trying to say? You are the highest authority. You are the highest happiness. Whatever you want, you're the great king. You sit enthroned of the world. Can you think of a way to make the world more miserable than to teach all the children that they are the greatest authority? Can you think of a better way to start wars after those children start to grow up? So these idols have to be destroyed. Notice that he repairs the temple. He repairs the temple in verse 8. And then let let me tell you the story more quickly because we've gotten the main point already. From verse 8 down to verse number 13, he repairs the temple. And in the temple, they find the law of God. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. They find the law of God and they take it back and read it to Hezekiah. To Josiah in verses 14 to 18. In verse 18, they read it to the king. And look at verse 19. It came to pass when the king heard the words of the law. What did he do? Everyone look in verse 19. Chapter 34, verse 19. What does he do? He tears his clothes. Then he goes and sends for a prophet. What can we do? 800 years of guilt are pressing down on Josiah. He's just read the Bible for the first time at 26 years old. And he realizes we have been breaking these laws for 800 years. And he read Deuteronomy chapter 28, which says over and over, if you break these laws, I will. And then follows about 50 verses of cursing, which the prosperity preachers, they love Deuteronomy 28 verses 1 to 14. Because Deuteronomy 28, 1 to 14 says, you will be the head and not the? It says, you will be blessed when you go out and when you? That's Deuteronomy 28, 1 to 14, verse 15. But if you do not obey, and then for 54 verses, 14 verses of blessing, 54 verses, it says, if you do not, this is what I'm going to do to you. And it's terrible. He says things like, I will make you so ruined that you will eat your own children. I will ruin you so badly that if a pestilence comes one at a time, you'll say it's a blessing. How many of us have said 2020 was great because we only had one disease? These are the promises of God in the Old Testament. Josiah reads them for the first time and all of the prosperity preachers skip those verses. They just couldn't find time to get to verse 15. They spent so much time over the first 14, they never got to verse 15. We're living in verse 15. We're living having broken the law of God. And we don't even care about it. And the judgments are coming on us in this way. In those verses, it says, one of the ways God will judge me, he says, I will take away from you the light and give you idols to worship. That's what's happened. We are darkened and we are saying, I'm doing just fine. Like the church of Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, where they said, Oh, we're rich and we're doing fine. And you don't even know that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. You don't even know this. We're blind. It was promised in the Old Testament. Josiah sees it and he begins to fear. He tears his clothes. In a few verses, in verse 27, it's going to say, he starts to cry. He says, oh God, forgive me. Look down at those verses. Verse 27. Because your heart was tender. 
and you humbled yourself before God when you heard these words. This is 34 verse 27. And against the inhabitants and you humbled yourself second time before me. You tore your clothes and wept before me. Look at all the verbs. He's tender. He humbles himself. He tears his clothes. He weeps. God hears those prayers. Josiah doesn't say, well, I'm sitting pretty good. I guess judgment's going to come on other people, but me, I'm doing good. Josiah takes it on himself like Daniel after him. About 40 years later, Daniel will come and do the same thing in Daniel chapter 9. Josiah weeps and tears his clothes. And then in the rest of the chapter, verses 29 down to 33, the prophet comes And Josiah decides, I've got to read this to the people. Look what he does in verse number 30. The king went into the house of the Lord and all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites and all the people, great and small. And he read in their ears all the words of the book of the covenant that was found in the house of the Lord. Who read the book? Says the same thing in 2 Kings. He actively picked up the book. He's 26. Remember, at those times, there's no public schools. There's very few books. There's not a lot of writing. Reading's a hard thing. Josiah says, I'm going to take this in my hand. I'm going to do this personally. I'm the king, and I have a responsibility to stand up and read this. Fathers, that's a pattern for you in your home. Ramaphosa is not the king of your home. You are the king of your home. And you've got to take this book and say, I'm going to do it. He reads the law and then he does something more. Look at verse 31. The king stands up in his place. That means that he took an official stand, standing like an authority. And in verse 31, he makes a covenant before the Lord. The king makes the covenant to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart, with all his soul, to perform the words of the covenant written in this book. Verse 32, he causes all who were in Jerusalem and Benjamin to stand along with him. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God. Here's the point, brothers and sisters. Josiah took initiative and responsibility. His zeal and his energy, he's 26 years old. He puts his zeal and his energy into confession. He puts his zeal and his energy into repentance. And it's a straight path upward. 8, 16. 20, 26. Every time you find the man, he's going up. Now let me share two secrets with you as as we close. Two secrets. Verse number 32. What does Josiah do in verse 32? He causes all the people to follow the covenant. Is that right? But Josiah is living and is about the same age as the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 1, it says, in the days of Josiah. And look over, if you look at chapter 35 verse 25, Jeremiah laments for Josiah. Jeremiah was a common preacher in the court of Josiah. And in the book of Jeremiah chapter 3, Listen to this, Jeremiah chapter 3, it says, In the days of Josiah, the word of the Lord came to me. So Jeremiah is living during this exact time. 
Jeremiah is preaching to Josiah at the exact time. And in Jeremiah 3, if you'll read that chapter, that's the place where God says, Jehovah says, I have given a bill of divorce to Israel and to Judah because of their ongoing idolatry. 2 Chronicles 34 verse 32 says, Josiah got all the people. Jeremiah chapter 3 says, all the people did not follow Josiah. What it means is this. Some people here follow Josiah, but a great number did not. Let me prove it more for you. That's Jeremiah chapter 3. If you go to Jeremiah chapter 26, it's in the days of Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim is Josiah's son. And it says in the beginning of the days of Jehoiakim. We'll see him next week. In Jeremiah 26, it says in the days of Jehoiakim, just after Josiah dies, Jeremiah preaches in the temple. And if you read Jeremiah 26, it says, and all the people and the priests and the prophets tried to kill Jeremiah. They rush on him like a mob. Jeremiah is about to die. He's only about 50 years old. He's still going to go to, he's about 75. He's been preaching about 20 some years. And now they rush on him like a mob. And he stands firm. And suddenly the rulers hear about it. And the government and the military comes out and says, hey, hey, what are you killing this man for? The whole mob of people want to kill who? Jeremiah. As soon as Josiah dies. Josiah dies. Jeremiah preaches. They say, let's kill him. And they almost did kill him. The last verse of verse 26 says, they would have killed him if it had not been for one man who stood between Jeremiah and the the rowdy mob. The point is, Josiah had to do right against a large group That was opposing him. Read the rest of the book of Jeremiah. Did you know the word Josiah comes more often in Jeremiah than any other book of the Bible? Josiah is referenced and the times of Josiah are referenced in Jeremiah. But if you've read the book of Jeremiah, you know Jeremiah is preaching a negative message. Jeremiah is not saying, hey, you all repented under Josiah. You're all good people doing good things. No, uh, Jeremiah says, This repentance you had under Josiah was only skin deep. Josiah was a true believer. Most of you, fake. You'll see that next week when we come back and show when they were destroyed under Josiah's children. That's the first secret. Josiah had a steady march upward, even in the face of opposition. And I close with this. God removed him before he could fall to sin. In chapter 35, we don't have time to see it right now, but in chapter 35, 2 Chronicles 35, verse 20, the king of Egypt comes down to, Josiah, uh, comes down to fight with another king, with Carchemish. Carchemish was near to Israel or Judah, but not in Judah. So the king of Egypt wants to go up and fight with Carchemish. And Josiah says, I'm going to go out and fight with him. And the king of Egypt says, God told me to come fight with Carchemish. I don't want to fight with you. Don't come and fight with me. Josiah doesn't listen. The king tells him a second time, don't do it. Josiah goes out, fights, and dies. 
at 39 years old. Would he have been the greatest king if he had lived till he was 60, 70? Or would he have done like Hezekiah that we studied two weeks ago? Do you remember Hezekiah? At 39 years old, Hezekiah was perfect. There's not one sin recorded about Hezekiah when we reach 39. When he's 39, he gets sick. He prays, oh God, heal me. And God says, I'll heal you. I'll give you 15 years. And two sins are recorded about Hezekiah. It says, as soon as he was healed, his heart became lifted up with pride. He looked around and looked and, you know, I am a pretty good guy. I guess God had a good reason for healing me. I mean, where are you going to find a king like me? Can't find a king like me anywhere. And Hezekiah, though he was a very good king, had a subtle sin that snuck in. Josiah dies before he can fall. Brothers and sisters, death is a mercy if it saves you from sin. Josiah died before he could ruin his legacy. Oh God, I pray to you now, take me before I ruin my marriage or my children or my ministry. Do you feel that way? Far better to die than to mess up and sin. God took Josiah before he could follow the foolishness of Hezekiah. In the Pilgrim's Progress, Mr. Feeblemind, he's very weak. And he says, I'm still trying to make it to heaven. And if I can run, I will run when I can run. I will walk when I cannot run. And I will crawl when I cannot walk. Isn't that wonderful? Josiah is even better. Feeble mind says, I'm going to run when I can run. But I'm so weak, I'm going to have to walk a lot of times. And sometimes I can't even walk, I'm just going to have to crawl. Josiah didn't crawl, he ran. And when he couldn't run, he drove. When he couldn't drive, he flies. I'm glad that there are Mr. Feeble Minds who just keep going, don't give up. And if that's who you are, keep going. But don't you want to be Josiah? At eight, you're good. At 16, you seek the Lord. At 20, you devote yourself to God. At 26, you search for ways to serve God. And at 39, God mercifully takes you before you can blow it. Yes, there are feeble minds out there. There, there, there are the uh, little faith. In, in Pilgrim's Progress, there's a man called Little Faith and Mr. Feeble Mind. They're very similar. And that's the way some people are. Maybe that's you. If, just take strength and do your best. But don't you want to be Josiah? 8, 16, 20, 26. That is God's plan for you. It is God's plan for us that we slowly and steadily increase. But I think most of us, it's three steps forward and two steps back. Or worse, two steps forward and three steps back. I call you today on the authority of Josiah recorded here. Don't be a feeble mind or a little faith. By God's grace, become a Josiah. Because in the Pilgrim's Progress, they're talking about little faith and feeble mind. And you know what they say? Did little faith always have to be little faith? And he says, no. He doesn't have to stay that way. He could mount up with wings like an eagle. 
Why don't we go to the Lord today in prayer and confession and say, God, forgive me. I should be like Josiah, but I've been like little faith. Oh, Lord Jesus, come and help us. Send your spirit to bless us and minister to us. Awaken.